Book Stew viewers, it's always a treat when I can share a local Wilmington author with you. And today I have an author who's not only a writer, but he's also uh, a doctor and involved with um, biosafety, especially these days. And um, most importantly, his novel, which we're going to be talking about, is set at Wilmington College. So I bet you didn't know there was a college right in town. Welcome, Dr. Larry Paoletti. Larry, it's great for you uh, for, to have you on the show. And we have a, so much to cover, so I'm just gonna plunge right in. And first, we're gonna talk about your novel. So here you are, you're a scientist, you're a doctor, you're an instructor at Harvard Medical School. What, when and why and how did you become a writer on top of all that? Well, thank you for inviting me here today. It's a pleasure. Um, so my, my story goes back to a time in, in, as an undergraduate when I took um, creative writing as a freshman. So I took freshman English, and then um, I was encouraged to take creative writing, which was a senior level course. And I, wasn't, I was stunned that, that it was recommended, but I did it because it was fulfilling a humanity requirement. And, uh, but my real interest was in science. I was in science programs. And uh, after I um, completed the creative writing course, the professor said, I, I don't know what you're doing, thinking about going into science, you should become a writer. And I really could never see myself as a writer um, on a full-time basis, but I really loved research and I loved science. And so I went that path and uh, did that for, for over you know, 25 years, I've been at, at um, Harvard in the Longwood area for um, over 30 years now. And um, in 2008, when the economy turned, had a downturn and there was a uh, re reduction in funding, I had to close down my lab after many decades of being able to fund it. And that opened up some time to pursue the writing, which I had backburnered for, for quite some time. And so I, um, I started at it by looking online, how do you write a novel? Because of course I hadn't kept up with the field and, uh, and all the writing that I'd done up to that point was all technical. Were you a reader? Oh yes, yes, I uh, read uh, technical journals all the time, but in the evenings I read, uh, non I try to read non-science, al although that doesn't mean that I don't read about um, scientific figures or uh, historical books about um, inventors and, and others, uh, like um, da Vinci, for example, and artists like Michelangelo. So um, when you say you backburnered the writing, if you, your lab hadn't been closed, would you have written these novels? Probably not. I, it, frankly, no, because the, so much of my time went into writing grants and uh, writing manuscripts and getting papers published. That was really the, the bulk of my time. It, there was no additional time for creative writing. Um, I, my friend and I started a, uh, uh, let's say a blog, let's say, that we just uh, worked with together to uh, just put down on a monthly basis what we were feeling about that month. 
what, whatever it happened to be. And so we just shared it with each other. But that's about the extent of the writing that I did outside of the technical writing, which, which is really different. How do you, so when you're writing, when you were writing the novels, did you have to kind of wall off technical writing completely? And how do you do that since, you know, 95% of your brain is probably a science brain? Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't easy at all. I, I, I have to admit that the technical writing is much, is much different. It's much harder in a way. Uh, it's just different because, um, it has to be more concise, more crisp. Um, there's no room. That many of the journals have word limits on articles. So you have to really fit a lot into a short amount of space. Um, whereas with creative writing, you can let it go and, and just start expanding. It was uh, refreshing to do so. On the other hand, I had to retool, like you said, retool my brain. It, I really haven't had to write technically for a while now, and I'm kind of afraid that if I had to do so, it would be a real challenge. Oh, well, it would probably just take some work to get back into it, but I, I bet it would, it would come right back. So um, you pursued a very interesting method for uh, how do I write a novel. So I think most of the writers that I speak to uh, always wanted to be writers, always wrote and the idea of going to a source, maybe they take workshops to get inspired, and, and, but they don't like go to the internet and go, okay, how do I write a novel? So I think, so you shared with me a very valuable writing source that you found on the internet um, about, and it, unfortunately it's called Snowflake, <laughs> which isn't a political term in this case. But um, I just thought it was interesting that that was how you approached it. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that method? Then we'll talk about the novel. Sure. So um, I stumbled upon uh, uh, Randy Ingermason's approach here. A and it's called the snowflake method because snowflakes aren't just built as you see them or as they're magnified, as you see them under the microscope. They, they build in a fractal way. They build little by little. And he used that same, um, that analogy as a way of encompassing how you would write a novel. So here's what he, in, in essence, what he, his uh, method says. Write one long sentence that encompasses the, big, the whole story, if you will. And then take your time with that one sentence, but then take e that sentence and expand it into 10 sentences. So now you have 10 well-written sentences that basically is the beginning of the novel and where the novel's going to end. And then you take the first sentence and you expand that into 10,000 words. And, and so at the end of the 10, you have 100,000 words, which is very close to the sweet spot for a novel between 100 and 120,000 words. So I thought, well, that makes sense. And, uh, and along with that was a um, software package that allowed you to keep track of, of um, characters, their, their eye color, their age, their uh. date of birth. And so I, I thought this is exactly what I need to keep track of everything and timelines. And so I had... Um, that's really how I started. You know, I went basically went sentence to sentence, built the chapter, 
until there was a point where I didn't need that anymore, and I, it went off on its own. The, the story just took off That's so own. funny when I mean, I'm thinking about it, because since you kind of wrote by, the, by a scientific method, which it, it is, um, you wouldn't really need much in terms of a fact checker and stuff and consistency checker because you can always go back to that cell in Excel or wherever where you stored hair collar and eye collar and stuff like that. I think it's, it's obviously a very sciencey method of writing, which I hadn't heard of before. Um, and I think it would, it would be interesting even for people who would disdain uh, that type of instruction to kind of, because you know, there are, there's a whole thing about plotters versus pantsers. You know, there's people who kind of snowflake and plot out the entire book, and then there are people who just sit down and write. And I thought, when I read The Doctor's Method, I said, oh, even a pantser, someone who works by the seat of their pants, could kind of fit into this scheme. So let's, let's move on to the novel, which was created with the help of this writing method. So um, your novel is called The Last Hypothesis, and there's also a sequel called Abby's Theory, but I'm going to focus on the first book because I haven't gotten to the sequel yet. So um, tell us a little bit about your, so when you were snowflaking out your sentences, what was, what was your anticipated goal at the end of the book? What did you, you, drew, you draw in a lot of elements in the book. Um, there's science elements, there's very personal elements, there are relationships in the book, there are very challenging relationships in the book. And uh, not to be a, uh, give a spoiler, but there's also a very serious disease in here too. So um, ha what was your thought process for putting the novel together? So I, I guess you could say that I was a blend of those two uh, approaches because I did structure it, and then about a third or a halfway through, like I said, it had a, it sort of took on a life of its own. And writing ten thousand words uh, wasn't that much of a challenge as it was in the first in, in the beginning, because it seemed to have now found its groove. I did not say in essence, that I was going to start here and end here. I had those 10 sentences, but then it found its own story. And I know that sounds strange, but that's exactly what happened, is that uh, it started with the idea that there's someone like me that retired and didn't know what was really going to happen in retirement except they've always had an idea of how they would, what they would do in retirement if the opportunity arose. Then of course the opportunity did arise because it happened to be set in a town that had a college like Wilmington College, which is essentially a prep school. And my thinking has always been that those are the real, those are students, there's young students that want to, that have minds that are that can be um, molded and, 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 and to think in a ways that perhaps others aren't thinking. And so this, that's when the story sort of took off, when um, the, the uh, protagonist, Dr. Dr. Dante Paolo, finds himself in uh, Wilmington College and going to teach a very uniquely structured course. 
So that um, I'll, we'll get we'll start uh, you reading in, in a few minutes. But um, I love the idea of the course. So the course is called Teach Your Professor, and uh, his so his objective in teaching the course was not only to encourage the students to do research on topics that they were interested in, all in the science field, but also he still had a true desire to learn. And if the class worked out in the optimal way, which it did, he would do as much learning from his students as his students did from him. Of course, he ends up teaching the students life lessons that nobody was anticipating. So would you like to do a, a reading from the beginning of the book? Sure. Okay, so this is the last hypothesis. Well, I'm going to start right in the beginning. Um, it's called, um, the chapter's called Act Three, and this is the first part of that. <clears throat> Most are forgotten, but this day would remain with Dante Paolo forever. It was early September in New England, and although the leaves on the trees in Massachusetts were still green, there were a few sugar maples in the wetlands whose tops were tinged yellow, as if they were chosen by their kin to rise up and survey the status of the season. The cool, crisp morning air helped the professor relax as he began the first day of his second career, the opening of his life's Act Three. Dr. Dante Paolo had an odd habit of labeling parts of his life as if they were scenes in a grand play. He considered the period from birth to age five to be a worth, wordless prologue. His endless imagination pictured a majestic burgundy curtain slowly rising on his life stage accompanied by the rich orchestral melody of the intermezzo from Miscogni's Calaviera Rusticana a tranquil beginning, a tribute to those who cared for him during those memoryless, completely dependent years as an infant and a toddler. But by that early fall day, his life had progressed well beyond the play's opening scene. Indeed, Dante, Dr. Dante Paolo felt the significance of the moment as he strolled across the neatly groomed campus of Wilmington College in the early morning light. For that simple but privately pointed moment marked the close of the first two acts that had consumed 51 years of his life. He knew that he was well beyond middle age and way past the potential for a midlife crisis. And like the wild twists and turns that unfolded during acts one and two, act three was a surprise addition to the playbill. It was completely unscripted and for the most part unrehearsed. Nevertheless, he approached this new opening scene with a sense of self-confidence, forged by a sound education and a solid family life in Act One, and a very rewarding career, and a stable and a stable supportive marriage written in Act Two. The brownstone buildings that dotted the campus of Wilmington College symbolized its New England puritanical roots. The stately structures served as steadfast reminders of the college's high prestige as one of the first institutions of higher learning in America. This classic college landscape was a common theme in Dr. Dante Paolo's life, as similarly beautiful buildings and rolling greens adored with stately black willows, tall eastern pines, gray American beaches, white ash and red oaks also graced the New England universities he attended as an undergraduate and as a graduate student. 
And despite the fact that he was located in a busy city in a crowded neighborhood on a bustling avenue, the medical school campus of Harvard University, where Dante had been a research scientist for 25 years, had its own unique atmosphere. The cityscape of glistening marble buildings supported by solid pillars of stone housed scores upon scores of academics who, through brilliance, through pure brilliance and perseverance, sharpened the cutting edge of scientific and medical discoveries daily. But what separated Wilmington College from other institutions established in the 1800s was that it rejected the young country's call to only teach farming and agriculture for a less common path of offering a broad and more diverse education. The college's founders sought to teach students how to gain knowledge. They wanted graduates to apply their newfound wisdom to benefit not only themselves, but also all members of society. Indeed, the college's 137-year-old precept, Scientia Unum Omnis, called on every student to aggressively pursue knowledge simply to better oneself, but then it also issued a direct challenge to apply this newfound knowledge to improve the lives and well-being of others. Okay, oh. so I'm going to stop you there because um, I want to talk a little bit about the setting, of course. Um, what street in Wilmington is this college on? I'm only, <laughs> I'm only kidding, but um, I wanted to mention that when my daughter was little, uh, and we talk about, you know, it, well, not so little, maybe in middle school, she said, um, so if I don't want to leave home to go to college, can I go to college in Wilmington? And, you know, I can remember my husband and I just rolling our eyes, making noises. So I'm going to share it with her. She is actually a scientist, and I'm going to share this with her and tell her that, you know, at least in fiction, her dream came true, <laughs> <laughs> never having to leave Wilmington to nice. go to college. But so um, the professor, the doctor, uh, teaches this course called um, Teacher Professor. He proposes a course, and he immediately has a foe amongst the, uh, amongst the higher uh, management in the, in the college. And um, so this was um, Dean Lorenzo Benedetti. And he comes, so in this book, there are basically two enemies. There's that dean, and then there's stage four pancreatic cancer. So um, is the dean, Dean Benedetti, who is a very fascinating and kind of Machiavellian character, it, is he a composite? <laughs> Of anybody you ever worked with? I think uh, so. Everybody, all the characters are brought in from different aspects of different people that I've met. They're they're uh, amalgamums of these uh, different people, and um, I, I I wanted I needed a character who was going to be um, reject uh, almost everything that the protagonist was up to. Is does that happen in in science? It, it happens in science all the time. Be for various reasons, because people basically don't agree with your, uh, your, the path you're taking, or because they're jealous, or any combination of them. It, it's any combination. As a matter of fact, I found several parallels in writing <laughs> and, and, uh, and the struggles in writing. Uh, you kind of work yourself into a situation, you have to figure out how to work out of it. And in science as well, is that how do you move beyond the people that are not supportive of your concept even. Um, and this happened to me in the uh, HIV world. It's happened in the past. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, that's happened, I think, in many fields. But I've seen it personally in science. 
Well, here in the book, um, the, prof the professor, doctor, uh, has four students. And actually, I think he draws a lot of strength from his four students who um, quickly become engaged in the idea that they are each going to pick a topic. And uh, initially, it has to be a topic in uh, a recognized journal like Science or Nature. And they're going to take the semester to explore that topic. And they're basically going to teach you and the other three students what they individually find out. And they become the strongest advocate for, the, for keeping the course going, even though there are only four students in it. So um, did, did you draw on memorable students you've had for these portraits, or are they completely fictional? Well, they're, they're completely fictional, but there are elements of each of them that I've experienced in other people, that I've seen in other people, for sure. And the, the teach, teach the Professor course itself uh, is a Socratic method of, of teaching, is more asking questions. And uh, you know, from the from the from the day that we sat on our parents or grandparents' lap, we were always taught didactically. But here is a different way of teaching that I learned through um, teaching the uh, the the microbiology lab portion of immunology, microbiology, and pathology course at, at the medical school, where um, the students were given cases to to uh, try to um, unravel. And these were medical cases, and the, they had to unravel this, the biology part of it. And it wasn't from me telling them the answer, is that they had to figure it out and ask, and ask questions. And then they asked questions of each other. And then they, if I, they asked me a question, my job was to ask them a question in return, right, not to that. give them the answer. So I've always thought that that method is a real strong method for teaching independent-minded students who are motivated to learn on their own. And uh, I've always thought that would be a, a, a terrific course. Especially since um, a lot of, I would think, medical school is just lectures and memorization. And so this would be really, f for any student who got to be in a class like this, would be really refreshing. And I guess this is pre-medical school where, you know, everything in medical school is aimed at passing boards and, you know, moving along. This, this allowed for creativity as well as, um, as scientific uh, knowledge. And one of the focuses, and the focus of the book is actually on uh, one student who has the ability to send images through her head to uh, the to the professor who's teaching in the class. So she was a really good sender and he was a really good receptor. Um, I thought that was a great focus for the novel to kind of pick something that's on the fringes of science. I mean, it's not, so when she initially chooses that topic, um, the professor was like, well, wait a minute, you know, you were supposed to choose something from science and nature and there's nothing about that in there. And, you know, she was able to give them kind of a demonstration and prove that this is something that was worth exploring. So is telepathy, like, in, has that been in your mental wheelhouse to? Right, so it, yes, the answer, the short answer is yes. Uh, I've always been intrigued by um, the, these things. Like, I, 
I thought you said that to me before. <laughs> how come I sort of anticipated that you were going to say that? We so I've always and I've read about it, but there really hasn't been a hard and fast way of studying it. Uh, I think that there are technologies on that are currently available in, in neurology that might tend to study this now, but um, the book doesn't go into that technology, in, at least in the first book. The sequel goes a little bit deeper into it. I and so um, Abby had to make her case. And, um, and yes, uh, those experiences I think that everyone has but sort of doesn't know what to do with them has mm. been something that's always intrigued me. And, and this is something that I've taken I wanted to take something that was people thought about, like, for example, um, um, the brain. Uh, they might not know that much of our brain, the function of much of our brain is unknown. You, that statistic in the book just blew me away, that we only use 3%, that what's known, what we know of the brain only encompasses 3% of the brain. So 97% of the brain is sitting there and we have no idea what it's there for. Right. So the point in that is for is for the reader to say, "What is this fiction or is this fact?" Wait, so they go and they go and look it up. They go, "Wow, this isn't fiction. This is true." So then what? So now I, I take that and bend it, and say, "Okay, what if we can think about how that other ninety-seven percent is being used?" That was v that was so intriguing, and that really um, that just like sparked a lot of interest in me when I was reading it. So we're going to have to wind down, which is really unfortunate because we didn't get a chance to talk about what's going on with research and COVID. So what I'd like to do is read your, the sequel, which is Abby's Theory, and then have you back on the show in some, uh, some future date to talk about that. And by then, fingers, fingers, cross, cross, there will be a vaccine and we can talk about um, you know, your involvement in uh, finding a cure and a vaccine for COVID. But I want to thank you so much for being with me today. Um, I kind of can't wait till <laughs> our next show, but um, thank you so much for coming on Bookstu. Thank you for having me. And uh, Bookstu viewers, um, if you're intrigued enough, uh, Larry's book is The Last Hypothesis, and it's available uh, through Amazon and in hard copy. I read it on my Kindle. And uh, the next book, Abby's Theory, we'll talk about next time and we'll find out more about Wilmington College. So uh, thanks for watching and have a great day. <laughs>